agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, welcome back to The Politics Guys. Hey, Trey, it's great to be back. No, it's always a lot of fun when we're on. Uh, I, I, you know, I, we're just different uh, than uh, uh, Jay and Mike and... And, and, and as we've often put it out, better, because we get the best stories. Uh, and so for those of you joining us, what we're going to be taking on this week, there's a lot of Trump investigation stuff, both kind of at the top level and at the bottom level and, and, and on the politics side of that as well. So we've kind of got a three in one story for you over the Trump investigation. From there, we're going to be moving forward uh, to talking about the visit uh, between uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and that relationship between China uh, and Russia. Uh, we're then going to transition to talking back in the United States uh, about uh, this week's take on TikTok uh, from kind of a bipartisan uh, Congress. Uh, and then we're going to finish up the show uh, talking about, as we always tend to do, Ken, a, uh, a foreign policy issue. That's not a foreign policy, just a foreign issue. We're going to take a look at Macron and France and what's happening there in terms of uh, retirement. And, and because there is some connections, uh, at least from his point of view, from what's happening in terms of protests and riots uh, in Paris. And so that's what we're going to be doing today on The Politics Guys. And we're going to turn to that next. Okay, so Ken, there was a flurry of activity this week uh, and over the weekend surrounding Trump on a number of legal fronts. And then there was also, of course, the exchange with who is considered, I'm sure, his biggest obstacle in the Republican primary, and that is Ron DeSantis. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to start with the New York grand jury and the New York prosecutor because of what was going down on Thursday. So let me kind of get us up to speed. Uh, right now, uh, the, the Manhattan grand jury is weighing possible criminal charges against former President Trump related to hush money payments during the 2016 presidential campaign uh, made to adult film actress by her, at least by her stage name, Stormy Daniels. Uh, to, to kind of get you on that front, what had happened is, is that Michael Cohen, uh, Trump's lawyer slash fixture, who is now kind of in the other camp uh, after his own legal uh, troubles, uh, paid uh, Daniels $130,000 to, uh, $130, to not talk about uh, her alleged sexual relationship uh, with Trump. And then after becoming president, Trump would end up reimbursing Cohen for that payout, but labeling it to him as being legal fees, which is uh, potentially a crime. And so over the weekend, there was some speculations from some corners uh, that an arrest was coming for Donald Trump, which then became much more prominent when Trump announced on his Truth Social website that he would be almost definitively arrested on Tuesday, which, of course, has not and did not uh, come to pass. So in true Trumpian fashion, he writes it out on all caps and says, quote, we'll be arrested Tuesday of next week. Protest. Take our nation back. End quote. 
Trump spokespersons were quick to announce that there was no formal notice of this happening, uh, but it was just obvious that it was coming from his uh, quote-unquote media contacts. Now, since then, he has continued to unleash on Truth Social. As a matter of fact, on Thursday afternoon, he had this long commentary to say, Ken, he said, quote, isn't it terrible that D.A. Braggs refuses to do the right thing and, quote, call it a day, end quote. He would rather indict an innocent man and create years of hatred, chaos, and turmoil than give him his well-deserved, quote-unquote, freedom. Again, I'm just reading this the way that Trump wrote it. Uh, the whole country sees what's going on, and they're not going to take it anymore. They've had enough. There was no error made, no misdemeanor, no crime, and above all, no case. They spied on my campaign, rigged the election, falsely impeached, cheated and lied. They are human scum. And that's the end of his tr uh, uh, Truth Social post. Now, inside sources right now, as of uh, Thursday evening, have said that the grand jury in New York is not and Manhattan is not going to be coming back until next week. Now, also, meanwhile, uh, on Thursday, the Manhattan prosecutors uh, had to end up responding uh, to Republicans who have been standing up for Trump over the weekend and for the earlier part of the week. As a matter of fact, uh, in part of this was a request from three Republican committee chairmen in the U.S. House of Representatives uh, to Alvin Braggs himself, accusing him of abusing prosecutorial authority and seeking communications. And so uh, what we got this week was commentary uh, from this. As a matter of fact, Bragg's office sent, uh, and again, the whole letter is not out yet, but it has been seen by Rouders and a few others who were releasing pieces of it, uh, saying uh, that the accusations, quote, only come after Donald Trump created a false expectation that he would be arrested the next day and his lawyers repeatedly urged you to intervene, end quote. Um, and, and in short, uh, the argument is, is that Trump was pumping all this up and there's nothing that's actually happening on that front yet. Uh, but his office is, quote, investigating allegations uh, that Donald Trump engaged in violations of New York state penal law. So that's a lot for one case. Uh, and of course, a lot of what I think both people were worried was going to happen or did happen isn't going to be happening this week. Uh, but we do get all of this from Trump. Uh, we get this response to Republicans in the House uh, accusing the uh, prosecutor of uh, misconduct. So, Ken, what are your thoughts on this? Well, you got a lot of different uh, questions laid into that, but um, oh, I know, uh, and there's more to come because we got another criminal case to take on, right? I'm I'm even trying to make it easy on you, Ken. I'm making it easy. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, I guess there's political and there's legal aspects I can. Well, let's start with on, the, but... you know, I guess this was kind of legal and political in the sense that like. There is no indictment yet, right? I mean, so again, just so listeners might know, right? If if you're going to get charged with a, a, a severe enough crime, you actually have to have a jury. A grand jury has to decide there's enough evidence to even bring charges against you, so that you can't just kind of have frivolous uh, charges brought against individuals. So we're not even really at at, at the at, at, at there's not a lot of legal proceeding to even weigh in on because there's no there's you know, nothing has come from the grand jury yet. So I mean I get that, but so go, I'm sorry, kid. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, actually, I'm glad you added that um, uh, adjective uh, severe enough uh, before you said crime because one of the more interesting sort of under you know legal aspects that I don't think has been commented on as much is. Um, 
you know, the, the crimes that Trump potentially could be charged for in the Stormy Daniels hush money case might only be misdemeanors. And if they're if they're only misdemeanors, there actually wouldn't be a need for a grand jury, right? Because a misdemeanor um, is just is low enough you can just bring that charge. You can, in those yeah, states. the char prosecutor could just file a piece of paper called an information and bring those charges. Now, I think there's probably political reasons why um, the Alvin Bragg would not want to do this by information because I think he would. Um, you know, just like to have the political cover of saying, you know, the, the grand jury decided to indict rather than saying, you know, I decided to charge. But, you know, but there might also be legal reasons because um, we don't know for sure whether the charges would be misdemeanor charges or felony charges. Um, I think the, the hush money payment alone, as I understand it, and I'm not an expert on New York criminal law, but as I understand it, that would only be a misdemeanor, but that the um, the felony would relate to falsification of business records to help um, uh, document the the flow of the money, right? So in other if, words, if, when the, when they were they were uh, the charging it as if it was a legal fee as opposed to what it was. Yeah, that that Michael Cohen um, uh, right billed Trump for for legal fees. Which were, you know, very high legal fees because they included the hundreds of thousands of dollars that were paid as the bribe, and then just I think hundred and thirty thousand. It's yeah. not. It's it's yeah. just my yeah. salary over th for, for, two or three for, years. For a few, for four a few years. hours of consulting. Know. Yeah, yeah. And then and then and then it's. Uh, um, and then I think he even had subsequent billing lines that were also um, fraudulent because when when Cohen, you know, nominally charged the hundred and thirty thousand for legal fees, that's taxable income to Cohen. So he had to pay, you know, income tax on that, and then I think he went back to Trump, and he said, "Look, you got to reimburse me also for all this income tax I had to pay on the hundred and thirty thousand dollars that I booked as legal fees." And so I think he got subsequent payments, but those were also mislabeled. And so there's so those kind of things can can raise it to a, a felony level, and you would probably need to have a, a grand jury um, indicting on that. Um, but, uh, you know, typically with grand juries, if, if a prosecutor wants them to indict, they usually will. You know, sometimes grand juries are, are um, given more leeway and the prosecutors don't try to influence them whether to indict or not. And that often will happen in cases where the, the, the police have arrested somebody and the prosecutor's not really sure that he wants to go forward to trial. You know, then, then he may not um, actually encourage a grand jury to indict. But, but usually, um, you know, usually they will indict. There's an old saying that a prosecutor could get a, a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich if he wanted <laughs> yep. to. And, uh, yeah, so so I, I think we can probably expect that if, if Bragg wants the indictment, he's going to get it. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, the, 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 what seems to be a delay, you know, I, I don't see that there's any reason to think that uh, Tuesday ever was the scheduled date. I think Trump made that up out of whole cloth. So, well, and so, according to the most recent report to the House, the answer was that's exactly what was going on. Oh, that, that Trump made it up out of full cloth. Yeah, that's what that's what Bragg actually uh, Bragg in said, his yeah. afternoon said was like, look, that, that's not us. That was all just coming from Trump. Yeah. And, I, and another thing that could explain the delay, which is really pretty routine, is um, so grand juries typically have longer terms of service than than pettit juries. So, you know, the pettit jury, which most people are more familiar with, that's the 12 member jury that sits uh, during a trial to hear a case. Um, and very few cases last all that long. So the, the pettit jury, you know, if they're impaneled in a case, they're probably talking about typically less than a week of work, sometimes maybe two um, but but grand juries, uh, you know, they look into a large number of cases, whether to bring indictments in a large number of cases, and they typically sit for weeks or months at a time. 
And um, so it's not as critical that they have perfect attendance every day, right? So in, in a, you know, a pettit jury, you know, if all 12 jurors don't show up, the, the jury grinds to a halt. But a, um, a, a grand jury with 23 members looking at lots of indictments, if someone's absent or someone else is absent, you know, they just work that day anyhow without them. Um, but, when they, but when it actually comes time to vote an indictment, then they need to make sure that they have enough people there that not only do they have a majority of the grand jurors there so they can vote, but actually they can't have anybody voting in that vote if they missed any of the key uh, days that you know uh, evidence was presented and, and they weren't there to hear it. So sometimes just through the randomness of when a grand juror might get sick or might have a, a conflicting obligation, you know they, they can't necessarily vote an indictment that day. They have to wait until they have the right number of grand jurors present so that they have a, a quorum who heard all the relevant evidence and, and can take a, a vote. So something like that could be going on, but it, it's not easy to see, you know, any any significant uh, amount of additional evidence that they'd be waiting for. But I think they're just, you know, dotting their I's and crossing their T's. Yeah, I mean, in Kentucky, as I recall, you know, having worked in the in the prosecutor's office, intern, I should say, in the prosecutor's office, right, grand juries uh, sat for a month at a time in Kentucky. Um, Whereas you were only sporadically called up when you were, uh, you know, doing case jury work. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying a, a, a pettit jury hearing a trial, like if a juror gets sick, the judge will make the decision to either kick that juror off the jury and bring in an alternate or to put the case in abeyance for a few days. But there's never going to be a day where, you know, a 12 member jury is sitting there with only 11 people present. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but, but when you're talking about a, a 23 member grand jury, um, you, there will, there will be days where, you know, someone won't show up and the, and the, the, they'll just say, that's fine. We'll keep going. So they, they don't, they don't grind everything to a halt that way. But then when it t finally does come time to vote, they have to have the right number of grand jurors there who heard all the relevant testimony in the case that they're now voting to indict on. And, and you know, as remember, they're, they're hearing many, many cases, on, you know, so uh, in that month of service that you were talking about, that grand jury probably heard like 20 or 30 cases or more. It's much more than what a, a pettit jury would hear. So before we get all the way away from that case, I mean, being the other uh, item that kind of comes up is how big of an actual deal do you think it is? I mean, it, obviously, it's historically it would be a first uh, for a president after his term, his or her term uh, being charged with a crime in this way. Uh, but what do you think that means in terms of the legal process itself, because I recognize we've talked about this in terms of impeachment. So there in the legal system, there's both the actual pragmatic rules of what's going on, uh, the ones you can kind of look at, put your fingers on. But there's also kind of the larger environment in which you exist. And being the first of anything is going to be kind of this larger environment. If next week we end up having uh, the grand jury uh, uh, allowing charges to come forward, voting for charges, what do you think that kind of in, in like legal historic perspective means, if anything? Yeah, I think it means a lot. Um, you know, the, the the it breaks a taboo, I suppose. You know, so even even Nixon wasn't um, charged; he was pardoned. Um, we we Did had for other. Uh, yeah, yeah, Clinton. Yeah, um, Clinton ended up after uh, after he was um, impeached and uh, acquitted at the impeachment trial. 
he actually did um, have his he lost his law license. There was a bar disciplinary proceeding right. brought against him, but he didn't he wasn't criminally charged. And uh, um, and yeah, so I think we we we've certainly have had um, presidents that there might have been probable cause to indict, and they haven't been indicted. Um, you know, I think in the case of Trump, uh, you know, just the the sheer number of um, criminal investigations that are happening, and really, you know, I'll say the sheer number of crimes that he committed. Um, probably breaks that taboo a little bit because if you're Alan Bragg in the in the New York uh, DA's office and you're thinking, you know, on the one hand, I've definitely got probable cause to charge him and I believe I can convict him beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, on the other hand, you're thinking, you know, no one's ever charged a president before and maybe I shouldn't do it. Um, it seems to me the the second consideration is reduced in Trump's case when you figure, well, but he's going to be charged with all these other crimes anyhow. So, you know, why, why should I worry about that? You know, he's going to be charged with the Mar-a-Lago stuff and he's going to be charged with the Georgia uh, electoral interference stuff and he, he's going to be charged with January 6th. And, you know, so it's really like, you know, it's not it's not um, Trump's not going to escape uh, an indictment given how many different uh, potential indictments are pending. And so I think any given prosecutor probably, you know, has less to put on that side of the balance and, and more to put on the side of the balance of um you know, well, if he did it, and if I can prove it, um, maybe I should in indict him. And in in in, in the in the um, although the Stormy Daniels case may probably seem to many people like the most minor of all the cases, and in that sense, some people are saying it's not a great one to go first. Um, yeah, true. You know, I, I think that the countervailing consideration there is uh, Michael Cohen did do time in this case, and uh, and and it seems you know usually one of the ordinary kind of prosecutors' considerations is. Um, you know, treating similarly situated people similarly. And so, you know, on the one hand, you might say, well, would they normally, um, you know, indict uh, a president? Maybe not. But if you say, would they normally indict someone for this kind of conduct? Well, not only yes, but they convicted somebody for literally this conduct and they sent him to prison. And, and Trump is clearly more culpable than Michael Cohen um, in this hush money payment. It was, it was Trump's money. The payment was made for Trump's benefit at Trump's direction. There was nothing in it for for Michael Michael Cohen. You know, all, all the benefit was for Trump, and so you know, to me, that is a a strong consideration to say, you know, if if this was worth prosecuting someone who was lower down in the same criminal course of conduct, then to me, that kind of addresses the the issue about whether it's right or wrong to to prosecute the the, the person who was at the head of the scheme. Well, I'm glad you brought, bring that up, Kim, because one of the things that seems weird about the way the coverage is is that that never actually gets addressed, right? So, you know, when you take a look at all the stories coming out this week and you're talking about it, it's almost as if the Trump is, a, the, the you know, prosecution of Trump is its own new thing. But as, you, as you're rightfully pointing out, the answer is somebody's already been in, in that particular case penalized. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, but it's, it's odd to me the lack of context that that receives, even what I would call some, you know, really good uh, uh, journalists journalist outlets. And I, and I think that just seems so crucial. I was going to ask you about that anyway, so I'm glad you bring that up. Yeah, to me, that's a significant reason to bring the case that I, I think it, it it's fully responsive to the question, well, would, would Trump be prosecuted for this if, if he hadn't been president? You know, is this just a political witch hunt? Is this just happening because his political enemies are able to find something to, to, to charge him with? You know, to me, it's kind of a complete answer to that question to say we have a controlled experiment here, right? You know, Michael Cohen was in fact prosecuted for this, so it's a uh, um, yeah. 
So, so I, I feel like that answers that question. So let's move. I mean, we're not going to move all the way, but we're going to kind of move uh, uh, half the way uh, here in a moment to, to, to talk about this next case, which is at the same time here uh, this, on this Thursday, we have the DOJ's investigation into January 6th having its own federal district court hearing. And so what's happening here and what happened in Washington, D.C. on Thursday is whether or not Vice President Mike Pence uh, can be made to testify before a federal grand jury. Now, the lawyers for Pence, Ken, are arguing that he was acting during that uh, uh, time as the president of the Senate. So just as a, as a kind of a historic background on this, and this is something we're actually going to be uh, covering uh, probably as we go through the Constitution in our, uh, as our overview, but you know, the Constitution actually lays out the vice president as being the speaker, if you will, or the president of the Senate. Now, this doesn't happen often, but only in certain circumstances. But of course, on January 6th, that is precisely what was happening, because when you're counting the Electoral College votes, uh, the vice president assumes that role as opposed to not, which is what they, they generally tend to uh, do. So Pence is arguing because he's in that role uh, constitutionally uh, as the president of the Senate, uh, he therefore has the same legal protections as a lawmaker when it comes to his communications over making decisions about uh, lawmaking. Meanwhile, today, Trump's team uh, argued uh, that Pence can't testify because of executive privilege. So they're actually taking you know, different claims from each branch for why uh, uh, Pence couldn't do that. Now, to add another little bit of wrinkle to this uh, area that we can talk about, Ken, uh, one of the lawyers on the Trump team on Thursday who was, uh, uh, testify- uh, uh, who was arguing, excuse me, uh, and I'm, I want to make sure I'm getting his name right, is uh, Corican, or uh, say his name. Cor- Cor- Corcoran. Corcoran, there we go. Uh, who, and he, he himself is also having his own separate battle to not testify. Uh, but this past week, uh, uh, Judge Howell has ruled uh, that he has to uh, testify, even though he was a lawyer for Trump. Now, this is really weird. I think it's something we can fun talk about because of what's called the fraud, uh, the crime fraud exception which means in this particular case, there wouldn't be any attorney-client privilege. Now, just a quick thing for listeners, and I try to kind of help set you up, Ken, is, is that, you know, in general, if you're communicating with your lawyer, your lawyer, because they're acting on your behalf, you, they can't be required to testify. We've even talked about it on the show before, right? So if, if I know that I've done something wrong, but I still want, of course, the best defense that I can have, I can talk freely to my lawyer about it and say, hey, look, here's what I did. What, how do we move forward with this? And then the prosecutor can't then subpoena the lawyer and say, hey, what did, you know, what did your client tell you? Uh, and that's the normal. But there are some limited exceptions to those. And one of those is the crime fraud exception. And in, in this case, and again, Ken, you can, you can get more detailed if I got this a little off, is, is that the, the, if, the, if your client is in the process of committing or is intending to commit a crime and you're part of that crime or fraudulent act, then you, you lose out on attorney-client privileges. Or if the client is uh, communicating with you so that you can cover up a crime as you're, as you're participating. So in other words, you can help somebody who's committed a crime and not do it. But if you're part of the crime or part of trying to help them get away with the crime, you kind of lose out on that attorney client privilege. So we got a lot of things happening here on the sec- uh, separate DOJ case. So take what you will from that, Ken, and, and, and tell us what you think is important there. 
Yeah, I know you asked about both the Pence um, speech or debate clause immunity and about uh, Evan Corcoran and the attorney-client yeah, privilege. Maybe start um, with Pence. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Pence. You know, no vice president um, has ever in the past uh, invoked uh, the immunity that the um, members of Congress get under the speech or debate clause. Um, but I, I don't think it's a hundred percent frivolous. Um, so I'll try to explain the immunity. Explain why I don't think it's a hundred percent frivolous, even though it's unprecedented. Um, but but I but I ultimately don't think he's entitled to that immunity. So. Um, the, 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 the Constitution in Article 1, Section 6 says that the, the members of um, each House of Congress shall not be questioned in any other place um, about any speech or debate in Congress, and also that they won't, can't be arrested while they come to and from Congress. And, uh, um, and, and the, the, the original purpose of that, it's, it's a separation of powers provision and it actually even reflects older um, older law from the English Bill of Rights, um, so that when 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 the struggle for Parliament happened in in England to kind of um, displace the, the the absolute monarchy, and there was a period of time where the you know still strong monarchy coexisted with with Parliament, um, there were concerns that. Um, the king would basically try to intimidate the parliament too much. And, you know, if they wanted to vote um, against for something he didn't like or not vote for something he wanted, you know, he would just arrest them. Or if they spoke in ways that he didn't like, he would just arrest them. Um, and, and so the English Bill of Rights had a similar provision, giving the uh, members of parliament a privilege to speak freely when they're in the parliament and, and it's privilege against arrest. And that, that language, which is really focused on speech or debate, gets carried forward into our constitution. Um, our, our Supreme Court over time, I think quite rightly, um, has interpreted the immunity more broadly, um, not, not only to include um, immunity from liability for speeches or debates um, made in the, in the Congress, but also a broader immunity for um, essentially all the legislative work that legislators do within the scope of their employment as legislators. So not not just giving speeches on the floor, but doing things like drafting bills or conducting hearings or or things like that. You know, voting on on, on bills, anything that's part of their job as a legislator, um, the immunity has been uh, um, interpreted to to cover. And again, it's it's a it's a protection for the independence um, of of the of the Congress as a separate um, uh, um, branch of government from the executive. It, it stops the executive. From using the power that the executive has to um, arrest and, and indict and 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 try uh, people, using that as a way to intimidate um, Congress. And it doesn't seem now, like that, a big power, but it's an important one. As a matter of fact, yeah. uh, we don't need to get all the way into it, but uh, that actually gets extended in the contemporary era to the individuals working for Congress persons. That's exactly right. And so. Um, in the Pentagon Papers cases, which I'm sure you're thinking of, yep. uh, so um, yeah, so so very famously, um, the Pentagon Papers were an internal Pentagon study that President Nixon had asked for um, when he campaigned for office. He he promised a, a, that he had a secret plan for peace with honor in Vietnam, and of course he had no plan at all. So when he got elected and he's trying to deliver on his secret plan for peace with honor, he figured he better come up with one fast. So he he asked the Pentagon to write him a kind of uh, uncensored history of all the decision making, you know, all of which happened during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. It wasn't it wasn't Nixon's decision making, but he wanted to know 
you know, how did we get where we are into this quagmire? And he wanted to read it, which I would say is to his credit. Compared yeah, that was, to that a, lot was, that of, was a, a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing, right? He actually wants to know what happened and, and read it. Um, but he didn't he didn't want it uh, getting published and it was top secret classified. But it turned out one of the um, uh, the Pentagon actually um, hired some defense contractors to help him write it. And one of the defense contracting firms they hired was the Rand Corporation. And one of the analysts for the um, Rand Corporation who helped helped write the Pentagon Papers was a guy named Dan, Daniel Ellsberg. And uh, as Ellsberg um, was working on writing the Pentagon Papers, uh, he became convinced, he was sort of a proto kind of Edward Snowden type. He became convinced that the public needed to know and that this shouldn't be secret from the public. So he starts sending copies of the Pentagon Papers, which he's one of the authors of, um, to the Washington Post and the New York Times, which start publishing it, but also uh, to, to, to anti-war uh, members of Congress. And uh, Senator Mike Gravel of Alaska receives copies of this, and he decides to do two things. He, um, he, he, he goes on the floor of the Senate and just starts reading the juiciest parts of the Pentagon Papers, and he wants that published also in the congressional record. Um, and he also has his aides uh, get in touch with book publishers and negotiate um, uh, book deals to, to publish the whole thing. And, uh, um, and so in the end, they all get charged with violations of the National Security Act. And I think they were in violation of the National Security Act at disclosing all the class, classified information. But um, they, they, they all raise uh, speech or debate clause immunity. And um, Gravel wins um, on, on the ground that um, he was making a speech or debate on the floor, and that's fully protected, fully immune from law. So even though he was violating the National Security Act, He's got immunity. And the court does extend um, the same speech or debate clause immunity to his staff um, to the extent that the staffers are following his instructions. So if he's giving them job duties and, and they're doing it because he's telling them to, then his, his speech or debate uh, immunity extends to them. They did draw the line at the commercial publication, though, and they said that to the extent that they were negotiating with commercial book publishers to publish the Pentagon Papers from out of Senator Gravel's office, that it, that it wasn't actually part of the duty of a senator to negotiate with commercial book publishers to publish things. That's not part of his legislative work. And so that component of his conduct was was not shielded by the speech or debate clause immunity. So now, having now kind of had that overall, Pence, right? So he is going to he's going to be in his role as uh, president of the Senate. He is counting the votes. And obviously, his view is that all that he can do is count the votes, while Trump is, at that time, trying to uh, argue that he can take a more active role in this. And the DOJ wants Pence to talk about that conversation. So how does that then fit in? Uh, uh, or you said it could, but you don't think it yeah. does. Uh, for the speech and debate clause. So why then in this particular case, uh, do you think that this is going to, although it is potentially yeah. true, not usable under the current facts of the case? Right. So I'll first start with one threshold question. It's it, the, the speech and debate clause says no senator or representative uh, uh, shall um, uh, uh, be, be subject. To, no, no, I'm sorry, no senator or representative uh, uh, for any speech, uh, for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. So there is a question about whether he's a senator, right? So he's saying he's a senator because he's the president of the Senate. Um, but I think there's a counter argument that he's not a senator because he's not um, the senator from any state. 
right? That the senators are the senators who are elected from states. So that's a kind of threshold question. Um, it would be uh, unprecedented for the, the vice president of the United States to count as a senator for this purpose, but I, I'm open to it. You know, I, I think that um, I don't think it would be wrong to consider him a senator for this purpose because he's acting in his capacity as the president of the Senate. Um, so I think that's okay. Um, and that is an then, Article Two power that he receives. That yeah, he's named as the president of the of the of the Senate. Um, yeah, so I. I mean, I think that, you know, I've heard the argument, I mean, and it is a novel question of first impression, so I think it's up for grabs. It's like a jump ball here. But I've, I've heard the argument that he's, he's not a senator because to be a senator, you'd have to have been elected to the Senate, and he wasn't elected to the Senate. But I, I, I'm, op I'm, I'm open to the counter argument that, well, he was elected to be the vice president, and that means he was elected to be the president of the Senate, and he was, in fact, functioning as the president of the Senate, and so he could be a senator. I think that's okay. But but I think that to me, the, the difficulty with his argument is more, even if you assume that he is a senator and that he's entitled to the speech or debate clause immunity, um, well, he certainly isn't, you know, if you go by the plain language of the clause, you know, he's not being asked, um, a question, being questioned about any speech or debate that he made in the Senate. Um, now, under the modern doctrine, he would, you know, also be privileged in connection with his work as a legislator. Um, but I don't think that President uh, um, Trump's um, attempts to get him to do things that, you know, simply are not part of his work as a legislator. He never thought that it was. Um, nobody when you say else he, what you're saying is, is that even Pence, Mike Pence yeah, doesn't yeah, argue this Mike is part Pence, of his job. right? Yeah, yeah, Mike Pence doesn't think that the role of the president of the Senate is to disregard the electoral votes. You know, Mike, Mike Pence thinks that the job of the, of the president of the Senate is to count the electoral votes. And if there's objections properly raised under the Electoral Count Act to preside over debate and voting um, on those objections, right? That that's how he understands his legislative role. And so when when Trump is telling him, um, and not just him, I mean that's how everybody understands his legislative role. It's the only legitimate understanding of his legislative role, and it's in fact his understanding of it. And uh, um, and and so when Trump is telling him, you know, you should, you know, you should, you know, not. Um, count the electoral votes that are presented to you. You should not follow the process in the uh, Electoral Count Act. Um, you you should actually just disregard the votes from certain states. Um, you should read um, uh, you know alternative alternative slates that John Eastman is going to arrange to have presented to you that were that were never properly um, uh, certified by the governors or secretaries of state uh, of the relevant states and that that don't actually reflect the outcome of the elections. Um, you know. Pence understands that the, the things that Trump is asking him to do are far outside the scope of his job as president of the Senate. Um, he wouldn't be doing his job as president of the Senate if he did those things. And, and that's why he didn't do them. And so it seems to me that in that sense, the subject of his conversation, you know, can't reasonably be said to relate to his work as, as a senator. It really um, relates to um, Trump's effort to commit a crime. And, you know, that, that is just, you know, beyond and outside the scope of, of any uh, uh, legitimate um, uh, scope of Pence's um, responsibilities as president of the Senate. Well, then let's kind of quickly come to that second question that we had there, which relates uh, to this idea that he's now going to have to have his lawyer testify against him because of the crime fraud exception. Uh, and so on, on this front, I mean... I understand what it is. I've, I've laid that out. How often does this actually come up? And, and what do you think about that coming out this week? 
You're talking about Trump's lawyer, not Pence's lawyer, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Evan Corcoran, who I went to college with, by the way, uh, I had to not, did not keep up with him since college. I didn't like him much in college, so I'm, I'm not so – Are you going to reach out? And maybe, maybe, he, maybe he'd go, come on the show. You can be like, listen, come yeah, on the show. Yeah. We'd love to talk about that. Yeah. I don't think that's likely, well, he, but – I guess one thing he and I have in common, we'll both be rooting for the Princeton Tigers tomorrow night, uh, maybe by the time that people hear this. So, <laughs> so Evan Corker and I can, can agree on that. You can, you can agree on one thing, and, and you'd both yeah. be wrong, but it's yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you think Creighton's got our number? Nah, no. In all honesty, I don't have a big dog. I was, I was disappointed about NKU's quick exit, but that's way yeah. far afield. Um, and then yeah. I was also disappointed about a a couple other schools that I have connections to is exits. Um, so I don't really have, I don't have much left in the, I don't have much left skin in this game. I love watching it, but you know, none of my teams. I had three schools in because NKU where I currently work and both my alma maters, uh, Princeton and Northwestern were both in, but uh, only, only Princeton is still in and, and that's Evan Corcoran's alma mater as well. So, um, so the, uh, um, anyhow, uh, I, I, of course the crime fraud exception is rare. It's, it's rarely invoked. Um, but you know, it's, it's the rare, isn't the same as never. And usually it's because most lawyers don't, um, uh, plot crimes, uh, with, with, with their clients. And, uh, um, you know, and that's really where the line is drawn that if, if the client committed a crime and now the lawyer is trying to, um, help represent the client, um, in, in court, then the attorney client privilege should hold up. Um, but if the, if the lawyer and the client are conspiring together to commit a crime, um, then there's no more attorney client privilege. and um, I would say that fairly obviously did happen in this case. I mean, it's, it seems uh, uh, incontrovertible um, that uh, uh, Trump's lawyers, not not Corcoran himself, interestingly, but the other lawyer, um, signed a document saying um, there there has been a um, a search completed here at Mar-a-Lago, and we can certify that there's no more um, uh, presidential records that belong to the National Archives and particularly no more um, um, uh, classified records that belong to the to the National Archives here. I certify that we did that search. It was thorough. And this is true. And so one of one of Trump's lawyers signed that, you know, it was false. Um, and when that lawyer was questioned and they asked, you know, why did you sign that affidavit, which was false? You know, what what kind of search did you do? And she says, well, I, I never um, did any search at all. But Evan Corcoran told me that I, I had to sign it. Um, you know, I, I think that that definitely raises, uh, you know, uh, at least probable cause and probably more. I think that I think it's already proof beyond a reasonable doubt, if you credit the other lawyer's testimony, that um, that, that, that Corcoran, you know, was conspiring with um, uh, uh, Trump to commit the crime of, uh, of, of uh, you know, f false f uh, signing falsely to these the certifications um, that the uh, that the search had been conducted and that there weren't any more classified documents there. And so since he was a, um, you know, a conspirator in that crime, uh, Judge Howell, you know, rightly ruled that um, he's not entitled to the attorney client privilege anymore. And he's going to have to answer questions about that. Now, he is still entitled to the Fifth Amendment privilege. And I do believe that when he comes in on Friday and is, is questioned by the grand jury, uh, he's going to invoke the Fifth Amendment quite a lot. And he is going to be allowed to do that. He's not going to have to incriminate himself. Um, but I think the very fact that you'll see him um, invoking the Fifth Amendment privilege a lot 
implies the truth of the claim that he has uh, committed a crime and he's got something that he doesn't want to um, incriminate himself for. Um, so, so that would prove the correctness of the ruling on the the, the crime fraud exception. Um, the the uh, the other part of this I would like to t mention because yeah. it fascinated me as a lawyer, just the procedural part of it. But I hope this will fascinate the listeners as much as it fascinated me. So when Judge when 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 Judge Howell in the federal district court made that ruling. Um, on uh, Tuesday afternoon, um, Trump uh, appealed it to the D.C. Circuit, the Court of Appeals, and that's the court one step below the U.S. Supreme Court. And and Trump went in there and filed an emergency motion, and and he said, um, you know, Judge Howell has made this ruling. She's ruled that uh, my lawyer Corcoran has to testify to the grand jury this week, and um, I'm going to appeal that. And I would like uh, the appeals court to to stay Judge Howell's order. And to delay Corcoran's testimony for at least as long as it takes the D.C. Circuit to decide the merits of my appeal, because, you know, what if Corcoran goes and testifies before the grand jury? And then and then, you know, it turns out that I was right all along and that he should have had the attorney client privilege. I'll, I'll be irreparably harmed by that. So you so you should stay this. So the way the D.C. Circuit responds to that, this is remember, this is Tuesday afternoon. They say, OK, um, we're willing to consider your an argument um, uh, for why we should stay this, and we're you can file a brief with your arguments for why we should stay this, and your brief is due at midnight tonight. They issued this at like 3 p.m. in the afternoon. You know that's unbelievably fast for an appellate deadline. It's it's by a factor of like 20 days, the fastest I've ever heard of. Wow. And, and not only that, they say um, to to the, to the to the Justice Department. You know, Trump's got to file his his brief at midnight tonight in which he makes his arguments for why he thinks he should get a stay. And you're going to have to file a responsive brief. And we want your responsive brief by 6 a.m. on Wednesday morning. So so the Justice Department is given from midnight Tuesday night to 6 a.m. Wednesday morning, six hours in the middle of the night only um, to, to read uh, uh, Trump's brief and then to file their own brief in response. Um, which they did manage to do. So they, they, you know, both sides got their briefs in. Trump got his in just before midnight. The Justice Department got theirs in just before 6 a.m. And then uh, by 3 p.m. on Wednesday afternoon, the D.C. Circuit issued a ruling. Um, so they resolved the case and they resolved it in favor of sustaining Judge, uh, Judge Howell's order. So there was this kind of the fastest uh, appellate uh, litigation in the in the history, I think. You know, where an entire case it was that fast, fascinating. Yeah, an entire case is briefed and argued and decided um, in in, in twenty four hours, basically. And 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 I think it's very interesting because um, you know, although I will have to you know acknowledge you know every every judge involved in at both both Judge Howell and the three judges in the D.C. Circuit, you know, they, they were all um, uh, Obama and Biden appointees. So n not a single judge involved in this was um, one who might have had a little more sympathy for Trump, perhaps. But uh, but it does seem to me that, you know, the real messaging that the court was um, doing by doing this unbelievably fast and I think totally unprecedented speed breakneck procedure to, to keep uh, Corcoran's uh, testimony um, coming um, this week. Um, you know, I think they're really messaging to Trump and his lawyers. We know that you've been using a, a lot of delaying tactics in a lot of your litigation. And, you know, you're entitled to file anything you think is meritorious. But don't expect that just if you throw, a, you know, just throw a ton of shit in, in, into these pleadings, that it's going to succeed in, in slowing things down and slowing things down and slowing things down. We're not going to slow things down. We're going to deal with things extremely quickly um, unless it seems to us that they have some bona fide merit. 
Um, and I think that's what that whole that whole episode was kind of messaging. So I think what we should do next, uh, Ken, is kind of turn ultimately to the other big, it's kind of related to these things, but it's its own beast, which is kind of the emerging Trump versus DeSantis continued break uh, as that happens. And so what I think we'll do is uh, we're going to take just a moment. And when we come back, uh, we're going to take on uh, Trump v. DeSantis. So, Ken, you know, we, we've, we've done a lot of legal stuff. We've gotten a little bit into the political stuff, but probably the biggest political story itself this week takes place in terms of the Republican primary, which is weird to talk about for the presidential primary since we really only have one candidate at this juncture, and it's still really early, and that's Trump. But for all practical purposes, it has become increasingly clear that Ron DeSantis is going to be entering that race. And if there was any doubt about it, it was cleared up this week uh, as we took a look at the relationship between Trump and DeSantis as it relates specifically, uh, most specifically at least, uh, to the Stormy Daniels case. And so what had effectively what had happened is we already mentioned over the weekend, many, many, many Republicans, most Republicans, uh, quickly jumped to Trump's defense in that man, against the Manhattan DA's office. Uh, and as you had even already noted, you know, some on the left were even a little worried about, you know, should this case come first and why shouldn't it? Um, but from one corner from which there was really no response, and that has been to his, this point, his strategy was Ron DeSantis. But what kind of ended up hurting him potentially this weekend uh, because the question was, well, why isn't DeSantis coming to the support of Trump? Is he not really Trumpian? And so finally, on Tuesday, uh, DeSantis, uh, said, he, kind of, he issues a statement, or he says this, he doesn't issue a statement, excuse me, which it's largely in support of attacking the DA in Manhattan, calling him a George Soros menace to society, but didn't have a good comment for Trump either. And he finished it off by saying this, quote, I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just can't speak to that, end quote. And that was too much for former President Trump, who took to so uh, Truth Social to call out, as he calls him, Ron DeSanctimonious. <laughs> you know, that, that's, he, he loves his attack names. You know, that's his, that's his thing. He gets into that. So he went after Trump uh, excuse me, Trump went after uh, 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 DeSantis hard. Now, what's new is, is that there is an upcoming interview now on Pierce Morgan, where DeSantis apparently for the first time has decided to get a little even more hostile towards Trump, which again, just engaging is new. Uh, and, and he says this in the interview from the pieces that we've had. Uh, he says, I don't even know how to spell the sanctimonious one. Uh, as he's talking again with uh, Morgan, quote, I, I really uh, I don't really know what it means, but I kind of like it. It's long. It's got a lot of vowels. Yeah, we'll go with that. That's fine. And then he would go on to say, quote, I mean, you can call me whatever you want, just as long as you call me a winner. Now, that's obviously a big shot at Trump, because, again, that's kind of his uh, uh, phrase. He goes on to say, because that's what we've been able to do in Florida is put a lot of points on the board and really take this state to the next level. Uh, he then got specifically into all of the shots. And again, if you just if, if you don't have anything better to do with your life, you can you can uh, peruse Trump's tr uh, truth social page. Um, 
you know, he, he's been taking a lot of hits on this and, and calling that out. He calls that, quote unquote, background noise. Um, and he says, quote, it's not important for me to be fighting with people on social media. He went on to say, it's not accomplishing anything for the people I represent. So we really just focus on knocking out victories day after day. And if I get involved in all that undertow, I would not be able to be an effective governor, end quote. So, Ken, this is obviously now an emerging battle. And I guess, you know, I think to this point, DeSantis's office has obviously been saying there's no reason to engage Trump. We're trying to be uh, we're trying to reach out to Trump voters. If we don't say anything, nothing's going to happen. But this seemed to be the bridge too far. Or it might have been the fact that this week we've also seen that uh, uh, DeSantis's numbers are not looking particularly good. They went down since his non-comments over the weekend. And this might be a chance to try to respond to some of that. But this is clearly the beginning. And again, I recognize it as being early, but this is clearly the beginning uh, uh, of the Republican primary process. I would say now in earnest as these two men exchange shots. So what do you think? I mean, it was inevitable that there was going to be some clash. It was inevitable that we were going to have uh, 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 names made. Um, but not all of it's what happens as we move forward is inevitable. What do you think about this now open feud between the two men, Ken? You know, I, I think it's it was it was inevitable, as you say, because DeSantis is really the only um, person who's kind of out there right now. I guess Nikki Haley announced that she's running for it, also, but but we really doesn't isn't getting really any traction, no, no traction at all. And and DeSantis is not going to be able to avoid um, making some kind of comments. You know, every time there's developed case it's probably in his interest to say as little bit uh, as possible about it but but the more uh you know the, the more he's in the public eye because he's the the main alternative to Trump for the Republican nomination um the more he's going to be continuously you know talking to reporters and being asked questions about uh Trump's issues um you know I think Trump is if, if unless unless something happens that causes um Trump's candidacy to implode and I think that could happen. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's going to be indicted in more than one of these cases. He's going to be on trial a lot. He may be convicted. You know, certainly things could happen that'll actually make it impossible for Trump to run. But if, if that doesn't happen, um, I don't see how uh, DeSantis takes it away from Trump. You know, I, I just I just don't see it. And I think that's kind of to, to me, that's kind of my read on, uh, on on what we're what we're seeing right now. You just don't think there's any really hope because he's trying to grab those specific same voters effect. I mean, obviously, in some ways, it's always the same voters, but this is unique in the sense that I really do think DeSantis, he is trying to be, I would say, the, the I don't want to say temperate, but he is the sophisticated Trump. Maybe that's a, that's a yeah. way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, if he's saying to Trump's voters, look, choose me over Trump because, you know, I'm like Trump without the baggage, you know, well, Trump's voters will probably actually resent that message, right? You know, they don't they don't mind the baggage and they don't like a guy trying to steal away Trump's voters, you know. And so I think that even though, you know, Trump's voters are certainly a shrinking segment of the American population and possibly even a shrinking segment of the Republican Party, um, they're still probably the biggest single segment of the Republican Party. And so that's what that's I think that's the kind of insurmountable problem that DeSantis has right now. Well, I mean, again, and to put some numbers on this, what shifts is that um, uh, Monmouth, when this was conducted in fe uh, February, 
uh, showed DeSantis topping Trump, you know, 53 percent to 40 percent. But as of this past week, Trump now stands at 41 percent to DeSantis's 27 uh, uh, percent with everybody else uh, in really low single digits in, in, in both of those goes. Uh, so, you know, you know, DeSantis was seemingly in a, in a more commanding position. But of course, those really early poll numbers are difficult because it's a biased sample in many ways because you're talking about people who actually know these names and are willing to respond. You know, and, and, and even for a primary, this is particularly early. Yeah, I also think there were a lot of Trump voters who didn't necessarily think that Trump was actually running again, you know, before. And so um, uh, DeSantis probably seemed to them like a very palatable uh, uh, ne- next best choice. But that, th- that voting block, you know, could, could very much shrink if, if they know that Trump is running. Now, from your point of view, I mean, one of the last things, and we've, we've talked about this on Discord a little bit, uh, and that is, is that, you know, I know that Mike uh, is, is relatively certain and there seems to be a lot of polling evidence that either a Trump or a DeSantis uh, beats Biden in the upcoming election. Uh, uh, so what, any comments on that? I mean, just really quickly before we move on. Oh, yeah, I, I'm sure Biden could beat either of them. I mean, uh, Biden obviously did beat Trump. And I cannot think of one reason that one single Biden voter in the country would would vote for Trump this time if there was a, a rematch. Um, you know, Trump's Trump is like appealing to a, a shrinking segment of of the public. And you know, Biden's had his ups and downs, but um, I think there's a lot of voters out there who might have some Biden fatigue and might not be thrilled to vote for Biden again. But if the choice is Trump, you know, I, I think that's exactly the dynamic. What about DeSantis then? Yeah. DeSantis, I think it's similar, though, because I think DeSantis, uh, you know, he doesn't hold, um, you know, I don't think he holds a lot of appeal for certainly for Democrats and I think not much for independent voters. So, you know, I I think I think DeSantis has kind of the same problem that Trump has now, Um, maybe not quite as severely because he's not quite as damaged and he's not going to be, you know, on the news for being the defendant in criminal trials for the, the year running up to the election. But, but I, I still think that ultimately his positions are um, appealing uh, to a, a, a segment of the American public, you know, that's farther to the right than where the mainstream uh, of, of voters are. And some states that um, Biden had some difficulty winning are actually much more shored up for him now. I mean, I'd, I'd think of Michigan in particular that way. It's it's inconceivable to me that a Republican could take Michigan again. You know, even though Trump actually took it in 2016. You know, I, I think I think that's moved far enough to the left. I mean, sadly, I think Ohio may be the other way. Like Ohio is still up for grabs in the mid in the you know around 2016. But now I think it's gone all the way Republican. But um, I think Pennsylvania is more shored up for the Democrats now. You know, I think a number of the swing states. Um, and, you know, Wisconsin is one could still go either way, but I, I don't see any reason to think that um, Democrats couldn't win it again. So, you know, I think Trump kind of, you know, shot the moon in 16 and got very close victories in a number of the closest states. Um, but un- unless he unless he could he or DeSantis could do that again, uh, and I don't think they could, um, I, I see no path to victory for them. Well, you know, as we get closer and deeper into the season, we will have to uh, do, you'll recall, we had our our four-person show when we talked about that with uh, all four of us last time in the primaries. Maybe I'll have to do that again. Well, Ken, yeah. let's, let's move forward again. I mean, we, we have spent more than half this show now talking about uh, uh, former President Trump. 
uh, it might be time to talk about some other things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that was Please. just you know, that was that, that's <laughs> yeah. the, that was the big issues this week, you know, and, and that's what you, yeah. we're always going to be looking at. But um, I do love that we always work and think about the big international stories, and we definitely have still a bunch of ground to cover, you know, on that front. And I think we need to start with this week Chinese President Xi Jinping uh, visiting Vladimir Putin. Now, as pundits have noted this week, uh, she push, was pushing back against U.S. power. Uh, the pair called each other friends and worked specifically in the case of Xi at, on, on trying to kind of be viewed as a peacemaker in Ukraine. And this comes right after, also this week, something worth chatting about, Putin was issued an arrest warrant from the ICC, that is the International Criminal Court. Now, China has long accused of the United States aggravating the war uh, by arming one side. And the United States and China have also had their own relationships deteriorate really since the Trump era, but only going further during the Biden era as well. And so we have this both maybe the hope being, I think many pundits are looking at, and I don't think they're wrong, <clears throat> and that is the, the new kind of counterbalance uh, in international relations from Russia and China, and, or maybe even China trying to offer uh, 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 Putin some cover for his uh, uh, take on the ICC. And then, of course, in the United States, there has been some, some pretty big pushback on the ICC uh, issuing this arrest warrant against Putin, both, both not just from the right, but also from the left, saying, well, they didn't do it against uh, you know, individuals in the United States during the Iraq war. So there's a lot of angles happening here. So, but what did you make of uh, the love in between uh, 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 Vladimir and Xi? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think I would trace that all the way back to uh, um, uh, Trump, Trump taking us out of the um, the PTT agreement. Um, uh, you know, that Obama had negotiated. I think, sort of, you know, to a surprising degree. If you look back over the past decade, um, uh, in the U.S., we've kind of moved both in terms of you know our government policy and our public opinion um, towards uh, an increasingly negative view of China, an increasing amount of hostility uh, for, for for China, and it's it's hard. You know, I, I'm not saying that's not justified. It may well be justified, but but I, I think we we were kind of in a framework a decade ago. Where uh, you know we could we could um, think of, of of China as a, a country that you know we could sometimes um, deal with. We had a lot of commercial relations with them. We were increasing our amounts of trade with them. We we had some diplomacy with them. And now you know the the more we're kind of moving into a a, a, a state of you know kind of open hostility with China, um, the more the more certain that made it. Um, that, that we're going to be pushing Russia and China closer together. And I, so I do kind of look at that, you know, this idea that China and Russia right now um, see, you know, great advantage to each of them in uh, making their ties get closer and aligning with each other more. Um, I think that is a consequence of the shift in U.S. policy towards China. Well, can I ask that, you a little bit you know, about that? Because yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's an, an excellent point to go back to uh, well, not not ending, but not allowing to sign uh, the Pacific yeah. Trade Deal, 
and and that was at the time. You know, that was one that actually had a lot of bipartisan support. You know, Obama had worked really hard uh, to get some on the Democratic Party to be on board with that because there was a lot of worry about labor rights. You know, that was one of the big issues back at the time that that uh, uh, Sanders was uh, uh, confronting yeah, yeah. as well. Uh, and it always seemed a big mistake to me. That was one of the areas where I had deep agreement with uh, President Obama because internationally speaking, as a, as a political scientist, one of the theories, theories is is that what brings countries together uh, in terms of uh, uh, the political side is the economic side. So as you increase economic connections between countries – you see rhetoric turned down because you have that. And likewise, the trailing indicator when you kind of remove those uh, economic uh, uh, connections and or create uh, barriers to economic connections is, is the political rhetoric can go up uh, and get more heated. And that's something we actually talked about on the show. And that was something that I, I took issue with. So it's, you know, here's a point where we, can, we, we agree deeply. Uh, but you, but it's it was what I think is a little bit. I mean, maybe it's just there wasn't an opportunity for it. But it seems in some ways that this is one area where Biden, uh, it, I would say, is very different from Obama, uh, and is probably more Trumpian like in the sense that he was not particularly interested in, in kind of extending those economic relationships. Uh, do you think that's in part because of some of the shift that happened uh, with the Democratic Party? I mean, again, I think Sanders had something to do with that. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I absolutely agree uh, with your observation that um, uh, Biden's policy towards China has more in common with uh, Trump's policy towards China than with um, Obama's policy towards China. I absolutely agree with that observation. Um, you know, in terms of what it has to do with I, I, I think, you know, if you think back to the debates, you know, going back to NAFTA and things like that um, years back, you had kind of, um, you know, a different kind of alignment than usual in those debates because you sort of had centrists in both parties um, against uh, the, 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 the extremes in both parties, right, where centrist Democrats and centrist Republicans favored um, trade deals like NAFTA far left and far right did not favor trade deals like NAFTA. So it wasn't so much left against right as center against um, uh, the, the, you know, I don't know what the right word, I don't want to say extremes, but, you know, not the center. And, uh, and well, I think that's the, the, the yeah. left and right's respective reasons, uh, you might call them uh, isolationists or trade barrier, uh, probe trade yeah, barrier. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think they had different reasons from each yes, other. My yes. sense is that the, the, the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democrats... Labor. Yeah, it was against trade agreements because they thought that it it would um, you know harm American workers. That you know, and I, and I I almost think they did you know contemplate the kind of situation we're in now, where there's these labor shortages now, in part because of trade barriers and in part because of other things. And you know, in principle, that that's good for workers, right? I mean, the fact that employers can't find enough people to hire now. Uh, means that um, you know labor has a, a little bit more. Um, it's more of a seller's market for people who who are selling their labor. Um, but um, you know, and then I think the right. I think a lot of the right's opposition to free trade agreements was you know more based in um, jingoism and nativism, and I, I would say racism. You know, and so I think there were these these well, different. Well, don't you think a lot of that was mer kind of like neo mercantilism though? I I think more, especially early yeah, on. Yeah. I, I don't think it had as much to do with jingoism as it was the idea like. We need to keep American dollars in America. And I dis heads up. I mean, I disagree yeah. with that view, obviously. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll allow that. I think that was a part of it, too. But I, I think all those motives were there um, on the right. And, I, you know, I think on the left, there was this idea that um, the, 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 the trade agreements um, sort of pushed 
wages and workers leverage down, you know, and in the center in both, you know, both the Clinton wing of the Democrats and the kind of Chamber of Commerce wing of the Republicans, you know, you had a lot of support for for free trade agreements. And and so I think the sort of the politics of, of that era, you know, also played out in China policy, right? That in China policy, just like in policy towards Mexico or whatever, you know, you'd see that same kind of alignment where the, the center left and the center right are, are, are saying, you know, there's a lot of benefits to increasing free trade, including political benefits as well as economic benefits, because you get closer ties with these countries and there's less less hostility. Um, and you have, you know, again, the, the right and the left kind of being against that. But I think I think what Trump kind of succeeded in doing was shifting, you know, much more of the right into the position that you might call mercantilist or that I, I was calling a jingoist or nativist or even racist. Well, now, I, I and, do think that Trump moves. I, I will agree yeah, on that yeah. front. I, I do think Trump yeah. was making uh, um, racialized arguments for sure. But I think that was more unique to Trump than, say, NAFTA. But anyway, that's a side point. Yeah, yeah. Well, I certainly will agree with that. Um, and, and I think the left was already divided on it, right? So I think what you end up having now is, um, you know, whereas you used to have kind of the center left and the center right um, agreeing on free trade and more openness to the world, you know, even as the farther left and the farther right didn't. I, I think now almost the whole right is against it and, and the left is still kind of divided on it. And that just, you know, means that popular opinion, because it was realigned by Trump, has really moved um, in, you know, much more to, you know, um, America first, you know, America versus the world, you know, type type mind frame. And, you know, I think it's one that um, you know, Biden, I don't know where his true commitments are on this, but I can see that it's not an uphill battle that he wants to fight. You know, he doesn't want to fight against all the Republicans and also fight against Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and all that. You know, I think he just doesn't see um, enough in it, you know, to, to, to take on the left of his own party and the entirety of the Republican Party. And, and so I think he's kind of, you know, in that sense, you know, choosing his battles and this isn't one of them. And so he's, um, you know, kind of continued Trump's policies of, of really um, marginalizing China, um, keeping a lot of Trump's trade policies uh, that are that are making it harder. And upping some of them. Business. Yeah, and upping some of them. Exactly. And 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 kind of always, you know, speaking in, about China, you know, in ways where I mean, he just, he still doesn't call him an enemy, but he calls him things like a strategic competitor. Yeah. But that's that's actually more more hostile language than say Obama ever would have been. You know, he would have said a strategic partner. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's 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 kind of a shift there. And so I I think that um you know that that I I think it kind of you know started more from the U.S. side. Now China has you know a lot of things that they have always um been you know not a great country about, right? I mean they. They don't have a lot of civil rights and human rights. They don't have a lot of openness or transparency. There's a lot of uh, ways that um, you know China does things that are odious, I think, to American values. Um, but that was true before, and I think there's this strategic question about you know what's the right way to make progress there. And certainly, an Obama or a Clinton would have thought you know the way to make pro progress in, in China and, and get them to um, you know kind of back off on some of their odious ways is to have more engagement with them and try to um, influence them with soft power. Um, but I, I think that that's not the way, you know, that's not the way things are today. And it's, you know, public opinion here isn't really open to that anymore. Biden, you know, is, is you know, wanting to, you know, turn China into a kind of a, a competitor. And I think China, you know, they, they're responding to that by thinking, okay, you know, if they're not going to be having closer ties with us, 
then they want to, you know, have more influence in parts of the world that we don't get along with so well, you know. And so I think the the logic of that, you know, sort of pushes them more uh, towards towards Russia in particular right now. So related to that, Ken, you know, there's another story that we had this week that was happening, and that's the hearings in the U.S. Congress over TikTok. Uh, and as, as a matter of fact, TikTok CEO Xiao uh, Chu made his first appearance before Congress this Thursday. And the hearing, which went on for five hours, um, started with calls from lawmakers wanting to ban the app. And, it, it, and more than anything, was really, as we were talking about, a chance for the individuals who want this kind of more hostile relationship with China to take stage. And as it's apparent to see, it was a bipartisan push. Um, it starts with uh, the chair of the House and Energy Commerce Committee, uh, Representative Rogers, saying, quote, your platform should be banned, end quote. Uh, you can't get much more straightforward than that. Uh, now, uh, Zhao argued that TikTok is not a part of the, CC, uh, the CPP or China more properly. Uh, he says, quote, uh, TikTok itself is not available in mainland China. We're headquartered in Los Angeles and Singapore, and we have 7,000 employees in the U.S. today, end quote, during his opening remarks. Now, while TikTok doesn't operate in China, it does, is leveraged by uh, 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 the Chinese government. And therefore, the worry, at least, is, is that, that all of the data from all of these American users uh, could be sucked up uh, by the Chinese government uh, for nefarious purposes. In other words, spying on you. At least that's what was hammered again from both Republicans uh, and Democrats today. Now, it doesn't seem like a big thing. I mean, I, I know for uh, a lot of individuals our age can, you know, TikTok, you might vaguely think of it in kind of a reference. But it is, in fact, the largest of, the, uh, of social media sites among college students. Uh, and in some ways looks to be kind of the future of that. And I can attest to that for individuals uh, on my campus. I'm not, you know, you have a slightly different age category, so I'm not quite sure how that uh, plays out in, in law school. But this would be a big uh, push to actually ban the app or the company from the United States. And it would certainly uh, tie into what we were talking about a minute ago. Uh, but again, as we noted, you kind of look at those alignments, you can see that happening during these congressional hearings because you have Republicans and Democrats. They're really not at, at all in disagreement. They're both just kind of coming after uh, uh, the CEO and, you know, it, at least to have that on record. I mean, that doesn't mean they're going to necessarily uh, follow through with it. But th those are some pretty strong words. How do you think those, that today went? Uh, and, and how do you think that plays into that larger relationship between the United States, China and Russia? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I so first of all, I don't really think that anything, uh, any legislation related to TikTok is going to pass. I wouldn't um, make too much out of what happened in the um, in the House today. The House may well pass some kind of bill. But, I, I, you know, if 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 the Biden administration doesn't want something like this to move in the Senate, um, it quietly will not move in the Senate. And, and I think that's the, the most likely uh, Do you outcome think, here. And that, that was one of my questions I was going to have to follow up. So you don't think that the Biden administration, there seemed to be some potentiality there that they might be sympathetic to that, uh, to a banning, or at least I should say maybe the rhetoric of it. It's harder to say, you know, the, the actual passing of it. Yeah, I think the Biden administration um, is never going to resist any of the um, anti-China rhetoric but I also think that where they can, you know, kind of quietly slow things down 
they still will. And, and I think this is one of those opportunities for that, that, um, you know, that it's, 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 it would, it would, it would be, uh, I think it, it would be bad policy to ban TikTok or to, um, even require TikTok to divest TikTok. TikTok isn't really doing anything different. Um, as I understand it, than than Facebook or Google or or you know any of the the, the big popular web apps that do a, a lot of data mining, and you know people are concerned, you know that all, all this data is getting to the Chinese government. But I guess you know I'm, I don't know why it's any harms me anymore that you know um, the, the the sites that I've searched, the, my Google searches would you know get to the Chinese government. Than would get to um, the owners of Google or Facebook or any of these other companies. It's it's uh you know I I, I don't I just I feel like it's it's not um, there's a lot of kind of hysteria about this and if 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 there's privacy issues that people are concerned about I I don't know why we don't legislate against all of the social media companies to protect those kind of privacy issues and you know if 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 there's concerns that it's it's somehow worse um, for the Chinese government to to, to spy on us. Um, than for than for Mark Zuckerberg or or, or or Google or Twitter to spy on us. I, I'm not sure I understand the concerns exactly. And so, you know, I, I don't know if the Biden administration thinks about it the way I do, but I feel like this is, um, I can't help but separate the idea that there's some kind of underlying, uh, whether it's jingoism or racism or nativism or whether it's um, mercantilism, you know, just, just I, I feel like the threats that TikTok poses are, are not that different than the threats that any other social media platform poses. And I'm not sure I can understand why they're being treated so differently. And I think the Biden administration probably would be concerned about, you know, the tit for tat kind of uh, trade war stuff that, 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 you know, any action like this could, could kick off. You know, I, one of the things that I would agree with there, I think this kind of energy could be used for shoring up digital privacy in, in ways that I think is deeply important. Uh, but and, and and you would think that that could be something that could be a bipartisan uh, issue, uh, but it doesn't seem that that's not the narrative, is it? And, uh, again, if anything, would this be on the front would be to say, well, look, for differing very different reasons, maybe similar to NAFTA on that front, for very different reasons, we can get together on this um, to, to shore up digital privacy. But that doesn't ever seem to be uh, uh, the case. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I think you might be the only point where we might have a little bit of a disagreement is, is I, I, I think the Biden administration is, a, and I don't know why, so don't, don't get me wrong. I, if I had a reason, I think it would be better. But they don't seem to very much want to, but it can be that is what you were saying, but they don't seem to want to kind of have any kind of say on that, to push back even gently against it. There hasn't been anything on that front. Which makes me wonder, especially since you have so many Democrats on board with that, I don't know, the possibility, maybe it is just waiting, having the negative uh, uh, ramifications. I don't have an answer there. But OK, I'm rambling at this point. So we should move forward yeah. to our last story, Ken. When sure. I'm not sure what else to say, that's what happens sometimes. Um, France. And I, you know, we don't want to spend a ton of time uh, on this, but it's a big deal, right? And this, this isn't really related to the United States. Uh, but this is the ninth day of protests in Paris and uh, Paris, excuse me, of protests and riots uh, in uh, in Paris in opposition to uh, the plan to raise the retirement age by two years to 64. Now, one of the things that American listeners might not know is 
the way parliament works in France is really unique. Uh, 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 the, the most recent constitution, the de Gaulle's constitution, it creates a really uh, an opportunity where you actually have two uh, executive officials. You, you can have what's called cohabitation because you have a prime minister and you have a president, but the president is the one uh, who selects this. So there's all these kinds of weird powers about what the parliament can or can't do. But to kind of just really quickly break it down, uh, the president is using his powers to kind of force uh, this raise from 62 to 64 for a specific kind of vote in the parliament. And that has just set off this storm. But as a matter of fact, it's weird. This week on Wednesday, as a matter of fact, Ken, uh, French President uh, Macron broke weeks of silence on the policy saying, man, I'm going to be standing firm. The law is going to come into force. Uh, and he compared the protests to the Jan 6 storming of the U.S. Capitol. I mean, that, that's some pretty uh, inflammatory uh, rhetoric. What do you take about all of this? I mean, again, we're getting way outside the wheelhouse, so you don't have to spend as much yeah, time. Yeah, well, it's, but... it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating episode. So the French Constitution has a provision in it that he used, which is really um, meant to deal with the kind of um, legislative gridlock problems that we have here. But, uh, you know, I don't know if it's a good provision or not. But in 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 France, if there's um, legislation that's very important to the the prime minister, and that the parliament won't pass, um, then the prime minister can just say, "I'm I'm implementing this without without a vote of the parliament." Um, but then but then the next step that happens after that is, if if ten percent of the members of parliament sign a petition saying, um, we want a vote of no confidence for the prime minister because he did this. Um, and Which that again is not Mark on. He's the president, just to be clear. Continue. Yeah. Oh, well, this, is, this would have been a vote of no confidence in him, actually. So I may have phrased that wrong. Yeah. That's they, not, that's, yeah so yeah, be careful. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's not for the PM, it's for... It's, it's for Macron. Yeah. yeah. So, so, right. So it's, yeah. So it's the PM that moved the thing forward. Um, so the government can move, can move forward legislation and skip the parliamentary vote. But but if the parliament doesn't accept that, then and if 10 percent of the, the, the members sign on saying, you know, we, we don't have confidence in the government because they pushed through this le this legislation that we wouldn't vote for, um, then that then that forces a vote, a single vote on both the legislation and the government. And so that, then the, then there has to be a majority vote. But if the majority wants to vote to overrule the piece of legislation that was rammed through, then they necessarily have to vote to end that government yep. and there have to be fresh elections. And so so it's a high stakes gambit. And so M Macron said, you know, I'm, I want the retirement age to go up from 62 to 64. Parliament's never going to vote for it. So I'm just implementing it unilaterally. And under their constitution, he has the authority to do that. But the risk that he takes then is if they want to overrule him, they can. And if they overrule him, he's not the president anymore. And uh, um, and so that vote happened, and he skated by by a super close margin. Um, so he 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 survived the no confidence vote. Uh, but there's been there's been riots ever since. And it uh, to me, it's a very two sided question. You know, I, I think in some circumstances, I can see the need to have a, a constitutional framework where when the the legislature is just too gridlocked to do anything. There's there's a way to, to legitimately get things done. And we we always have the debates here about when when presidents do things by executive order, whether that's even legitimate or not. Um, well, in the French system, there's no doubt that 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 is legitimate. But then there's a price to pay for it, which is that every time they do it, 
um, they're risking that their whole government could fall. There, there has to be a, a, a referendum after that on, on you know, whether whether they were so wrong to do something like that, that the whole government should fall. So um, I, I can see advantages of having a system like that. It, you know, if, if we think of it, for instance, as though um, it was fiscally necessary, but politically impossible to raise the retirement age, um, then, then this does provide a mechanism for getting something done that's that's fiscally necessary, but politically impossible. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, it, it, um, it, it, it you can see why the people get very upset when that happens, because it, it always means that the government has somehow found a way to, you know, poke the people in the eye and ignore the ignore popular opinion and make big changes that the people don't want. And certainly raising the retirement age is is a, a, a kind of, you know, poster boy for that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, again, there's also like you were saying, there's I, I can see the policy necessity of it when you take a look at the projections. I mean, even moving it to 64 from everything I've read is not it will it will extend them time, but it won't fundamentally fix the system. And, and, and when we say broken system, we're not even talking in terms of like Social Security. <laughs> you know, we're talking about something that has maybe a decade, maybe left of time of functioning the way that it is. Um, and the thought is, is if you do this, you might get 25 years, as, I, as I've understood it. Um, and, and, you know, so the. the yeah, you get that, but at the same time, just like you're saying here in the United States, do you really want your executive branch to be able to do that? And it's just extra weird because in France you have an you know a, a two executives, you have a president and a prime minister. Now, of course, I don't think like you were mentioning it. Would it be worth doing in the United States? But since we don't have a pre- we don't have a parliamentary system, so you could never call for new elections in the same way, right? We have fixed electoral cycles. Yeah, yeah, we're, it's, yeah, yeah. We're, we don't. It would be hard to adjust that to a parliamentary system. But thinking about some kind of mechanism where um, I mean, I'm sure. I mean, it won't happen, but just theoretically. Maybe there could be some kind of mechanism where um, the Constitution could be amended to give the president um, authority to actually unilaterally enact legislation when Congress won't do it, but subject to some kind of popular referendum um, afterwards. You know, and, and I yeah. think that's sort of what this is trying to trying to do. And, it, you know, I, I think there there. It, it's it's it seems to me like it, it is a useful governmental mechanism or constitutional mechanism um, for. Uh, government to you know do things that are necessary but also unpopular, um, but it does have a huge cost um, you know because the 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 it turns the public against their government and so both you know maybe there's a need to preserve the the, the fiscal soundness of the pensions, but there's a cost of of people thinking you know the government is not responsive to us and yeah. uh, and so that's that's I think that makes it a very double edged sword. Well, Ken, we have had a absolutely packed episode, <laughs> yeah. uh, and and so you know we've we've come to the end of this the, this time for the uh, the stories, but we got a lot of cool things going on. And, and one is, as we always do in this section, I'm going to say, look, I hope you'll consider becoming a supporter of the politics guys because of all the cool things you get, like free ads. And I say that every week, but something you may not know, and this is what you can do is. You can actually take advantage of a kind of a Patreon trial where you get everything from the politics guys, uh, uh, you know, n- no, no, nothing down. Uh, if you decide to, to break off at the end of the month, no big deal, right? You, we didn't get you anything you wanted. And I want to mention one of, the, one of our listeners took advantage of this this month, and that's Connor. So, Connor, I hope that you've really been enjoying the stuff that you've gotten, like the ad-free versions of the show or what Ken and I are about to do, which is 
our full show where we go through the U.S. Constitution. We're going to be moving on. Yes, we're, we're, we're going out of Article 1, Section 8. We're moving on to Article 1, Section 9 to talk about uh, uh, powers denied to the states. So you're going to get those cool things. And Connor has been doing that. Connor, I hope it's been a lot of fun for you. And I'm just going to say, hey, if you're listening, why don't you take Connor's advantage uh, and see what it's like to have access to the Discord group, ad-free versions of the show, and more. Uh, And I hope that you like it, and then you'll want to continue to be supporters. But that's not all the news we have. There's another big news item. We have a new executive supporter. Ivan English, thank you so much for deciding to become part of the executive supporters group. I love it. And I love to see that you want to add your name. Uh, And that's one of the things you get, just like Ivan said, maybe you want to be like uh, him and you want to have your name at the end of the show, you can become that executive supporters level. That is one of those levels of support. So again, I've been English. Thank you so much for becoming one of our executive supporters. I hope you love this kind of big bonus show. And I hope you really enjoy uh, Ken and I as we get to, again, our, uh, our, our go through the Constitution and the midweek show uh, with Article 1, Section 9. So how can you do this? How can you maybe even get your free, uh, your free month or how can you become a part if you're already ready to uh, uh, become a supporter? Well, you can do a couple of things. Uh, go ahead and head to patreon.com slash politics guys. That's right. Patreon.com slash politics guys. And you can do just what I've been talking about. Or if you'd like, you can also support us on Venmo where we're at politics guys. You can also support the show through PayPal. All of those different options are in the support links in this show's notes. But of course, you can always head to our website at politicsguys.com slash support for those same things. Now, if you'd like to be able to get this midweek show that I've been talking about that Ken and I are going to do again, we've been going through the Constitution. We're going to be doing Article 1, Section 9. If you want to have access to that, but you're just not in a position uh, to financially support the podcast right now, we totally get that. It is possible to still be a part of that. You just need to email Mike at Mike at politicsguys.com and he'll get you set up. Now, whether or not you're a supporter, we really would appreciate if you could subscribe to the show on Apple Podcast or the podcast uh, app of your choice. Review us. I know that gets annoying. It pops up all the time, but it means a whole lot for the show when you just take a few minutes to do that or even to share the show. If you've really liked this uh, packed show with me and Ken. Share that out on Twitter, on Facebook, or on the social media of your choice. If you've got a question, a comment, a correction, or anything else you'd really like to share with us, you can always hit us up, up on uh, email at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you're going to find all of these links, you guessed it, in the show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Will Marino, Andra Ma- uh, Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode next week. I hope you'll join us then.